What an exciting place to be. The assembly of the saints on the first day of the week. In fact, as we open the pages of the Word of God, isn't it a thrilling thing to appreciate that those brethren that engaged in the activities that you and I are today, they did so 2,000 years roughly or so ago, and we are able to do what they did then, celebrating what they celebrated with all the fervor and all the enthusiasm that they did. It's good to be back with the Pippin Church today. Denise, Brooklyn, and I are excited to be back. We appreciate your kind thoughts directed relative to that meeting last week at Mount Della. We're certainly, though, excited to be able to serve the Lord today with you here. That meeting was certainly encouraging to us, and those brethren, in their kindness and in the nature of the preparation they'd made for the meeting, certainly, it was something that was a very exciting time to be sure. Today, however, for our lesson, you probably can see in the title that we're going to at least address a topic that is a very real and a very common one at that. Discouragement. How do we handle it? Aren't you thankful that we have a book such as the Bible, which in fact provides for us tips, wisdom, words of advice that prepare us to address any circumstance in life and do so in a way that would be beneficial to us and glorifying to God. It is with that said that this first slide, the introductory one, will basically be just that. I would simply say, and it is no great revelation, that discouragement is real. It comes to each of us at one time or another. Sometimes it can have consequences that are great. Other times it can be, in fact, almost debilitating. In any regard, why don't we turn to the Word of God and at least look at the life and times of a man named Elijah and in so doing address how he dealt with discouragement and the words of wisdom that God gave him. I would say that the number of things that can bring discouragement to you and me can be a rather lengthy list, but whatever those sources may be, may we be comforted by that which is included in the Bible. And so it is that why don't we take just a moment at least and rehearse the setting of the text so that then we're prepared to develop the lessons in context from it. If you would wish to do so, we'll be at least making a few comments about 1 Kings chapters 17, 18, and 19. And as we make those brief comments, they'll prepare us ready to make a few practical observations for us. The king of Israel at this time was Ahab. Saying no more than that, we know that he was an evil man. In fact, the text of the Bible will directly tell us that he was worse than any of the kings that had gone before him. Now that by itself is bad enough. But he went on to marry a woman named Jezebel. And don't we remember, you see, that she encouraged idolatry. She encouraged the worship of Baal and Ahab went right along with her. And those two brought such evil into the people of Israel because... They not only turned the people's attention away from the God of heaven, but they turned it toward Baal. In the fantastic description that's given, that evil is highlighted. And I might draw your attention to the opening verses of 1 Kings 17. There was a prophet of God at this time named Elijah. And Elijah, of course, recognized the evil work of Ahab and Jezebel, and he opposed it. Might we at least have courage ourselves because we can admire the courage in Elijah. 
He had in him the nature of standing up for the ways of God in the midst of the king who, in fact, was opposed to God. That particular work on the part of Elijah brings me to say this. Elijah directly told Ahab, there won't be dune or rain in this land until I say so. Now you think for just a bit of time, when you and I experience just a week or so, or even a few weeks without rain, what things begin to happen. But what if you don't have any dew either? And this goes on for weeks, and for months, and for years. No rain or dew. You can only imagine the kind of hardships that would come. Not only would there be great famine, not only would there be tremendous loss of animal life and others, but people would begin to starve to death. Well, no wonder in this particular setting, Elijah had directly told Ahab, due to, in fact, the nature of your evil and wickedness, there won't be due nor rain. Now, as that chapter quickly proceeds, God gave Elijah instructions. You go and dwell by the brook Kirith. And so, at least until the brook dried up, Elijah would have a source of water, and God commanded the ravens to provide him with his nourishment. So birds were bringing him necessary food. But of course, there came a time when that brook dried up. At that point, Elijah found sustenance in Zarephath with a widow woman. In fact, God directed him toward that particular place, and while there... We remember that she herself was very low on food. She was gathering two sticks, and she told Elijah, I'm going to prepare the little bit of meal I have left, and the little bit of oil that I have left. I'm going to make a cake for me and my son, and we're going to die. We're out of food. Elijah told her, You first make me a little cake, and by the power of God, the oil will not deteriorate, that is to say, it will not go, it will not, will not vanish away, and neither will the meal. God miraculously preserved her all the while that Elijah lived with her until the rain came again. Isn't that a blessedness of God's provision? A wonderment from days gone by of what he brought about to preserve her due to her faith in Elijah and more carefully her faith in the God of heaven. No wonder in that regard, as you can see on the slide, we quickly then observe that these were very difficult times because Ahab and Jezebel were encouraging idolatry. And God's people were thus very much turning their attention toward that evil way of life. As chapter 18 comes before us, we are presented with a remarkable contest. It may well be one of the most familiar scenes in all the book of 1 Kings. In fact, you may well recall how it developed. Elijah was such that he directly confronted Ahab and in, in fact said the following. If I may paraphrase, let's settle this. I worship Jehovah God of heaven. You parade the nature of and the character of Baal. Who is God? And in verse 18... Elijah told the people, If the Lord be God, serve Him. But if Baal be God, then serve Him. There isn't but one God. Now at this point, can't you and I be amazed at the contest that Elijah proposed? In fact, bullocks were taken 
you devotees of Baal, you prepare your bullock and you call on Baal to send fire to consume it. I'll call, I'll prepare my bullock and I will call on the God of heaven to consume mine and the one that answers, let him be God. The people easily agreed to it. That sounds fair. And thus, Elijah allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. And so they prepared their bullock. They prepared the altar. They laid out the cut up pieces of animal upon that altar. And then they cried to Baal to send fire to consume the sacrifice. They cried the remainder of the morning, but there was no answer. About noonday, finally Elijah said, Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone in a journey. Maybe he's otherwise occupied. You need to cry louder. They did. They began to cut themselves so that blood would spew forth, thinking that that might garner the attention of Baal. And so they cried and cried and still no answer. Finally, as it approached the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah thus put the altar in place. He prepared his animal and put the meat upon the altar. And he gave these orders, take barrels of water and pour water on it. And then he said, do it again. And so now we have this sacrifice drenched in water. And even a trench that had been dug around the altar, it too was filled with water. And Elijah called on the God of heaven. And God sent forth fire and not only consumed the meat, it consumed the wood, it consumed the rocks, and it lapped up all the water. And the people had to acknowledge, Elijah's God is God. He answered. He won the contest. And in that light, we will remember the aftermath was this. Elijah said, take those prophets of Baal and kill them. And 450 prophets of Baal lost their life because they were false prophets. They weren't prophets of the true God. And just as the Old Testament had highlighted... The identification of a false prophet was when the man's prophecy did not come true. You might well imagine as chapter 19 opens, though, Jezebel was not pleased about this. You see, she was a proponent of the false prophets, and she loved the prophets of Baal. They ate at her table. So when she learned that they were now slain, she sent Elijah this message. Tomorrow, by this time, your life will be just like the lives of those you took. She was going to kill Elijah. That was her plan. That was her thrust and idea. She hated what he stood for. For that reason, Elijah had to flee to preserve his life. And that brought us to the lesson text that was read this morning. Could I direct your attention as Lester brought it before us to verse 4 of 1 Kings 19 as Elijah had fled to Beersheba and even a distance beyond it, this is what he said. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am not better than my father's. If we may paraphrase, Elijah was in a position to say, I'm on the run. 
I've tried, God, to stand up for you. In that contest, your work was great and phenomenal, but I've had enough. Take my life from me. Now you can hear almost in Elijah's words an element of discouragement. He was weary. He had arrived at this point under threat of his own life, and in so doing, he was ready to go on. We can only wonder, what about the verses that follow? How did God respond to this attitude on Elijah's part? Did God take Elijah at this point? Or was there a different message to be shared with him and for him? You may appreciate at the bottom of that slide that Elijah drifted off to sleep beneath that juniper tree. And an angel woke him up, and in fact the angel had prepared sustenance and nourishment for him. And he said, rise and eat. And Elijah did. And then he fell asleep again. And one more time, the angel woke him up, prepared others, and said again, arise and eat. And Elijah did. After he felt somewhat better, after being sufficiently nourished that way, we notice in verses 9 and following, God gave him a message. And it was a message that will be a critical part of our lesson this morning. A message that was not what Elijah had prayed for. In fact, we read about an earthquake. And we read about a fire. And we read about a strong wind, all that were sent by God. But God wasn't directly in them in terms of message. And then there was a small, still voice where God told Elijah what he needed to do next. In other words, there was work for Elijah yet to do. There was work yet for him to accomplish. There were tasks that God intended him to complete. It wasn't time for him to die. Wasn't time for him to leave yet. All of that leads me to use all of that to the next slide to say this. In light of those things, let's make a few observations. First of all, discouragement. It's going to come. There will be times of frustration. There will be times of disappointment. And in your life and mine, there will be times wherein the matter of discouragement shall come our way. Elijah felt it. A man who in the previous chapter had enjoyed the tremendous success of that contest on Mount Carmel. And in the very next chapter, what discouragement was now his. More than once in that chapter, he had commented that, I and I only have been a faithful prophet, Lord. Your people have become false, and they have become those who follow Baal. Elijah felt alone. Elijah felt frustrated. Elijah felt discouraged. Could I draw to your attention to verses 4 and 10 in chapter 19, wherein these sentiments are expressed? In fact, he stated them twice. In light of all of that, as you and I traverse the remainder of the Word of God, we so easily discover that Elijah wasn't the only person who ever felt this way. Think about how many other Bible characters themselves new discouragement. I have merely invited you to consider in Isaiah 49, verse number 4. There, the description by the people, again, of Israel, is that they too felt as if matters were on the verge of worthlessness. 
they too felt as if the issues were so difficult and discouraging. As we transition into the New Testament, in John the 6th chapter, among other places, as well as John 14, 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. The apostles had troubled hearts. The apostles, on the evening of that day, they too were feeling troubled. Now, to be sure, the Lord had spoken many times about issues that were quickly going to come to pass, but to be troubled, they knew it. Those elements of being troubled bring me to remind that powerful exclaim in Romans seven twenty four, where Paul himself said, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see, Paul too was feeling discouraged. Didn't he know more than once about the challenges and difficulties of being faithful to the Lord? There were people who were desirous of taking his life. Was he not stoned in Acts 14, verses 18 and following? And left for dead, and yet, by the great blessing and power of God, he revived, or at least they hadn't killed him like they thought that they had. It might be fair to say, Paul certainly knew about some elements of discouragement. And yet, even the disciples in Luke 24, 21, they too were disheartened. Do you remember the words they shared? They said, we thought surely this Jesus was the one to deliver and to bring us an element in liberty, and yet they killed Him. That was the two on the road to Emmaus. They were disheartened. They knew a bit of discouragement. So the first thing I might say to each of us, it's not sinful by itself to feel discouraged. Some of the greatest servants the God of heaven has ever had have known discouragement. And so when you and I feel that way, that by itself isn't wrong. What can be wrong is what we allow it to lead us to do or to lead us to feel. But to be discouraged by itself isn't wrong. What about observation number two? Sometimes the sources of that discouragement can come from very unusual and unexpected places. First element might be this. Sometimes that discouragement can come from our brethren. In other words, the ones you would think would be the most encouraging, that would be the most supportive, that would be the most directed toward the things of God, are actually the ones who turn out to be the sources of the discouragement. Look back to the scene of Elijah. Here was Elijah, the man of God, this great and bold prophet. I invited you to notice verses 4 and 10 earlier in the lesson, but why not look at them perhaps again? Specifically, in 1 Kings 19, verse number 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You see, the people of God, those Israelites, you would have thought that they would be strong supporters of the truth. They would have been strongly in line with the things of God, and yet Elijah says, the ones who should have been at my back helping me. They've thrown down your altars, God. They've killed your prophets. 
They've turned their back upon you. They aren't interested in truth anymore. The very ones you might have thought would have been the greatest supporters of Elijah led Elijah to say, I, even I only am left. As far as Elijah knew, he was the only faithful person. He felt lonely. He was surprised and disappointed that his fellow Israelites were not helpful. And they, in fact, were idolatrous. Could I again not say that his brethren, who you thought might have been the supporters, were actually a source of some of the discouragement? On that slide, might you and I remember sometimes today, that still will be the case. The people who are members of the church those that you would thought would have been the strongest and most fervent servants to the Lord, they will adopt attitudes and they will adopt philosophies and they will adopt ways of behavior that not only are inconsistent with the Bible, but that will, of course, bring discouragement because you expected better of them. You expected more of them just like God does. Sometimes brethren can be sources of discouragement. Could we not then say we ought to be mindful of the fact that people can disappoint you. They can hurt you. They can really shatter your confidence in the human, in the human being because they make their mistakes and they have their perspectives that are not right and they can make their choices that are not in keeping with truth. On that slide, isn't it interesting to remember that Jesus in John chapter 6 taught about matters connected to this. And may I say, this is one of the grandest lessons, it would seem to me, of that chapter. Jesus directly told the folks of that day, look, people can and likely will disappoint you. Your faith mustn't be in people. Your faith must be in God. And when people disappoint you, you're then not shattered when that happens because you realize your faith is not in them. I would suggest that that would be a good chapter for us to reflect on when brethren let us down. Have you ever known someone who perhaps is quick to say, well, I attended there for a while, but they're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Well, it's true. People may make their bad choices, and they may not act as they should. But if my faith is not in them, but is in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll not let them crush my faith. And I'll not let them lead me aside from serving God as I should. Jesus, in fact, told that that's the proper way of doing things. On that slide, I've listed a few examples for us to consider. In Acts 13, verse 13, on that first missionary journey, Paul, of course, was faced with some who opposed directly that which he was trying to do. You remember Elymas, the sorcerer, who directly tried to keep other people from hearing the gospel. He didn't want anybody to hear it. Paul, you might remember, looked him straight in the face and pronounced an element of judgment upon him, and he became blind. You see, he learned a valiant lesson. God's will is supreme, and anybody with a nerve to oppose it, anybody with a characteristic attitude to try and withhold the things of God is in a bad place. In Colossians 4.14, as well as Philemon verse 24, we read about how sweet it was that Paul was thankful for the encouragement and the faithfulness of brethren. 
I might suggest those are just the opposite of this. Our brethren can encourage us, and they can be strongly supportive of us. And aren't we thankful when that's true? There's a great principle I would suggest in Psalm 118, verse 8. Put your trust not in princes, but in God. There's where we find the place that our faith will never go wrong. Lesson number three, in addition to these two, is this one. There are times when that discouragement will, of course, be primarily from an exceedingly strong enemy. Look back to the case of Elijah again. In what we've just learned earlier today, we see a man who himself was opposed by the king, the most powerful man in the kingdom, at least in terms of civil arrangement. Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they hated what Elijah stood for, Jezebel especially. She, in fact, wanted Elijah to be dead. When those in high places despise you, when those in powerful and prominent places can't stand you, we know that they can make life miserable. They can bring many hardships upon us, oppressions and afflictions. And didn't Elijah know it well? May I suggest, as you and I come to the New Testament, there certainly is a great principle in that for us. As faithful Christians, we are opposed by the great force of the devil. Jesus Himself said He's the strong man, Mark chapter 3. We recall that Peter identified Him as one who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom He may devour in 1 Peter 5, 8. It is the case He is a strong foe. He is an enemy not to be disregarded. In light of those things, ponder the case in which you and I find ourselves. We are trying to be faithful to the Lord in the midst of a world so often gone wrong, so often with misplaced priorities, and so often devoted to what is not good. And all the while, the devil's encouraging that. He wants to see every child of God lose his or her faith. He wants to see every element in the church destroyed. And he wants to see the church a powerless shell of what it once ought to have been. That's what he wants. Revelation 12 describes that devil as having the church in his crosshairs. He goes about each day attempting to bring about weakness in the lives of those of faith. A life of faith that is not as it ought to be. May I say, that strong enemy has many elements in his armament. There are many weapons he tries to use. We have to understand that fact. And just like Elijah, we need to be mindful and careful. Don't take him for granted. At the bottom of that slide, could I suggest that we have been given a Christian armament. And time will not allow us this morning to proceed through all of those element by element. But there's a helmet of faith. There's a, a, sorry, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation. But that list proceeds through ultimately feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Every part of us is then armed appropriately. May we use that armament to a great advantage. And perhaps it's worthwhile to mention the sword that we have, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God.
Ephesians 6, 17. Thus, the only offensive weapon that we have is that one. All the others are defensive. But in terms of offense, we have the precious book of God, the volume of volumes. And in that book, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is able to, in fact, quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and are able to be used by us with such effectiveness. Speaking of that Word of God, doesn't all of that allow us then to do this? Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, said to stand. In the midst of enemies that try to knock you down, in the midst of those oppressors who wish to in fact bring about you in defeat, you stand. May we stand? Absolutely. May we intend on it. Because having done all, Ephesians 6 verses 10 and 11, he said, make sure you stand. Now all of these things I've listed as three elements. There is a fourth one, which we will develop in at least slightly more detail like this. This one is probably what you expected to come in light of what God told Elijah. Remember, Elijah said, I've had enough. Take my life. But God had a different intent for Elijah. And if I may again paraphrase, Elijah, there's work yet to be done. There are tasks yet to be completed, and I intend you to do them. Nobody else. You. And among those things were Elijah, you see, was to reign over or at least give strong consideration to selecting the next two kings, one of them over Judah, one of them over Israel. God commissioned Elijah to anoint each one of them. That's among the works which he had yet to do. And yet there was another one. Elijah, you need to select and to put in place your successor. Now we know Elijah was going to die at some point. But the next great prophet that was to follow in his shoes and in his steps, you need to be instrumental in making sure he's ready. We all know it was to be Elisha. What great work Elijah had yet to do. It wasn't time for his demise. In terms of applying those things to us, I've listed a few elements in this consideration just to put things in proper perspective. Do you recall that Elijah felt as if he was the only one? God would tell him later in 1 Kings 19, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one, Elijah. There are people of faith. There are people of conviction. And there are people who are ardent devotees of me, speaking of the God of heaven. So one thing that Elijah needed to understood, there were faithful people left, maybe not nearly as many as there should have been. After all, there were lots and lots of people in Israel. God could only list 7,000. Today, you and I may well be in the minority. Doesn't the Bible teach that? Doesn't the Bible list in great detail? When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, how many were saved? Lot and his daughters, only ones that got out of the city. Everybody else died. We don't know how many that was, but it had to be in the thousands at least. Few, may I say, were saved. When the time came that the children of Israel, you see, ultimately left the land of Egypt, how many fighting men of Israel were there? 
603,550. How many of them entered Canaan? Two. Two out of 603,550. Few were saved. Few were what they ought to have been. In Jeremiah chapter 5, when God was detailing the particulars of ancient Jerusalem, He told Jeremiah, go and search the city and see if you can find even one faithful man. There wasn't even one. Isn't that something? Few, you see, were right with God. In Luke 13, 24, when Jesus was asked the question, will there be few saved? Two verses later, He said, yes. You see, if we're in the majority, we're in the wrong bunch. Those in the minority have always been the ones who have been faithful to the Lord. Thus, we shouldn't let numbers discourage us. There's going to be more in the majority, obviously, than the minority, but Jesus said more than once, few be saved. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and hear him now, few there be that find it. We must be numbered amongst the few. To, f- to be among the many is headed to destruction, you see. And so, not only are those numbers a matter of some consideration, look near the bottom of that slide. We know very well some of the practical sources of our discouragement. Sometimes our health begins to fail, or we deal with health challenges that begin to weigh heavily upon us. Sometimes it might be financial matters. Sometimes it's relationships where someone in whom we've greatly trusted has let us down. Whatever the source in particular may have been. May you and I remember some of what God told Elijah. There are a number of promises to the faithful. And among those we should highlight this. Don't let the past ruin the future. Paul knew well what the past was like. He had been a persecutor of Christians. He had helped put some of them to death. He had, in fact, persecuted the church. But he could say in Philippians 3, 3 verse 13, forgetting what went before and looking forward to what lay ahead, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We mustn't allow the past to zap the present and to remove the power from the future. But not only that, you'll notice we're also reminded of the character of faithfulness. Elijah, just like you and I, was admonished to continue in faith, even though others may make poor choices. May we not let them crush our reliance and confidence in God. I've invited you to consider verses like Psalm 56, verse 11, where we're told on that occasion about the nature of putting trust in God. I will not be afraid what man shall do unto me. Now that takes a great deal of confidence and assurance, but the psalmist felt that way and encourages us to feel the same. Jesus said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you and I have the Lord with us, isn't that enough?
If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 For that reason, we have every opportunity to be optimistic and to feel as if a positiveness will come our way. That element in positiveness, of course, is perhaps triumphed in the words of Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. Acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. And if you and I live along that pattern, what an element in positiveness, and God will allow us to continue to do His work as well. The continuation of those thoughts are merely summarized to some extent by what we see here. God told Elijah to get back to work. He told him not to give up. Could I ask us to feel that way too? Don't give up. The tasks that God has for you to do maybe are things that nobody else can accomplish the way you can. And therefore, if we give up, that work may well go undone completely. May we be busy in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 will say that you and I are admonished to appreciate this. Didn't Paul tell that church in Corinth to always be abounding in the work of the Lord? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As we close this lesson this morning, we have seen much about discouragement in the life of Elijah, but we've also seen how God reacted to it. Today, maybe you and I have well known on occasion elements in discouragement, but God would say to us, just like Jeremiah felt. In Jeremiah 20 verse 9, Jeremiah exclaimed the fact that he too was discouraged. He said, in response, God told him this, I was weary with forbearing, and I could not contain. I've got to go on preaching. Jeremiah said, though I might have wanted to give up, I just can't because the message is too great and people need it. Maybe your life and mine can feel elements of that same consideration. As we close this lesson then, in summary to all those things, discouragement's going to happen. It's real and often powerful. But just as we've learned in the days of Elijah, sometimes, though it may come from brethren, it may come from strong enemies, but we must go on in faith, just like Elijah was told to do. Today, it could be that someone in this assembly has begun to allow elements and discouragement to distract you from the main goal in front of you. If that's true, may you be reinvigorated with truth, moving back to the element of just in principle what was told to Elijah. May we always continue. Don't give up. That word perseverance is a key one, and that's taught several times in the New Testament. Steadfastness. Today, if we could be of some assistance in the rededication of the life of any wayward child of God, we would be honored to do that. If you'll repent of those sins and confess them, we would be delighted to make note of those things in prayer to God, and He will lovingly forgive you and welcome you back to a sturdy position of faithfulness. But if you have never become a Christian... Would you please consider what you're missing? Your name at this point is not in the book of life. You're lost. If you die today, you know where you're going to spend all of eternity. Don't continue in that state. Why don't you come to the Master who loved you enough to shed His blood for you, 
to give His life for you, to pave a way to heaven for you if only you'll travel it. But He does leave you to make the decision. That obedience to the cross requires you believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And today, what a marvelous change in life that'd be if you would avail yourself of that opportunity of obedience. This song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of help, won't you come while together we stand and sing?